What a great time of praise as we worship the Lord. I don't know if you remember, it seems like ages ago now, but you remember way back in James chapter 4, verses 6, James actually says that God opposes the proud and gives grace, gives His grace to the humble. Right? Do you remember that? Because James has been elaborating on the proud for the last, basically, uh, three sections following that particular statement. He gave three examples of just proud people. He talks about believers who judge, right? Who, who sinfully judge each other and speak against each other and how proud they are. He talked about uh, those that live their lives as practical atheists, believers who, who don't acknowledge God's presence in their lives daily and live their lives as if they weren't actually believers, and how arrogant and prideful they are. And then he, then he gave an example, and we talked about this last week, of unbelievers, because unbelievers would come into, right, come into the service from time to time, and, and unbelievers were oppressing other, uh, the believers in the congregation, and how, how arrogant and prideful they are. But, he, but James said, uh, a woe unto those, right, the woe unto the rich and the ungodly of this world. And so that brings us to the section that we're dealing with today. We're, gonna, we're starting a section where James is transitioning from the uh, unbelieving rich and those who cause distress for the believers to addressing the believers again themselves. He's addressing those that have been, been oppressed, those that have been harmed, those that are suffering. And we'll be looking at James chapter 5 verses 7 through 11 this morning, and we probably won't make it through this. It's probably going to be a part one and two. But, but when you think about suffering, right, suffering that where um, we all face it because it's inevitable, right? We live in a, a fallen world. We face sickness. We face bodily pain. We see and feel that in ourselves. And the hard part is when we see it in others that we love, and often we can't do anything about it. Right? Suffering is a part of life because we are sinners and, and death is always stalking us. And death will keep stalking us until God's appointed time when death overtakes us. The other sad thing about the suffering that we live in in this world is, is because of sin. We've all been sinned against in some manner, form. Right? Sin is both intentional and it's indiscriminate. We've been intentionally sinned against. And then sin at times is random, indiscriminate. Bad things happen to people. The sad thing as well is that we are both victims of sin and we are perpetrators of sin. Right? We sin against others. We cause others to suffer and others cause us to suffer. It's a sinful world that we live in. Right? But one additional type of suffering that as believers we face is we face suffering because of Jesus Christ. The world we live in is not our home. We're, we're travelers, right? We're, we're aliens, right? We're not illegal aliens, we're aliens, we're, we're strangers, we're, we're traveling through this life, and our home is what? Is in heaven and the, the new earth. 
for we look forward to, we long for. Well, one thing to remember is that in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone does evil, hates the light, and does not come into the light for, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And Jesus says later in John 15, 18, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So you will face trouble because you are Christian. Peter echoes this statement. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says that, that unbelievers, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Right? They don't understand. The word there in the Greek is, is debauchery is uh, dissipation. Right? They're just wasting their lives and they don't understand why you don't waste your life pursuing the things of this world. And they malign you because the world hates God and will not submit to Christ as Lord. That's why you suffer, right? Because they, they hate God and they hate everything that's to do with God. A friend of mine sent me an article the other day, and it was, a, it was about the uh, Secretary of Education for the state of Arizona in the United States. And when she was sworn in, I don't know if they do that in Australia, when they swore, swear in an official, they, in the states you place your hand on the Bible and you, you promise to uphold the oath and follow the Constitution. Well, she, she hates God so much that she refused to put her hand on the Bible and instead asked that she could put her hand on a Dr. Seuss book. She hates God, but she's just an epitome of everyone. Everyone might be not so blatant to say that, but they, they shake their fist at God. And so when you think about suffering in this life for the cause of Christ, that's what you're up against. You're a light, a small lantern in a dark world. And so when we think about suffering, James is, is very familiar with suffering. He's very familiar with the plight of his congregation. And as we, we read this section, as we've just read it and as I'll go through it, you'll, you'll see that over and over in verses 7 and verses 9 and verses 10, that, that even verse 12 later on, he says, he says, brethren, he understands their plight. This is the picture of a pastor coming along to comfort his congregation. We've already talked about how the, the rich are oppressing them and robbing them of their wages, and that even some of them have died, either through injustice or starvation. So he understands the plight of his congregation, and he understands what they're facing. And James wants to help. And in James' writing to this particular congregation, we see principles that apply to us in our modern context. So praise God for His Word, because God, because James's intent and God's intent is that He would give you instruction on how to endure suffering. Now, like I said, I don't know if we're going to make it through. The title to today's message is How to Endure Suffering. I don't know if we'll make it through all these principles today, but the four principles that James gives are four instructions to endure suffering. He says, first of all, wait for the Lord. The second is to avoid strife. The third is look to godly examples. And the fourth is to remember God's character. So let's go and look at the text and then we'll dig in and we'll, we'll see how we can endure suffering this morning. 
James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion, is merciful. So the first thing that James lays out, the first principle, first instruction, is that we are to wait for the Lord. Look down in verses 7 and 8. Notice he says, therefore be patient, brethren. And then he repeats the exact same phrase, and he emphasizes it to you specifically, individually, you to be patient. Now, when we think about this word patient, in the Greek, there are two words that are often translated for patience. If you flip back over to James chapter 1, for most of you, it's a page or two. James chapter 1, verse 3. Well, let's look at verse 2, since we'll just start mid-sentence. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. Now, some translations will have the word patience there, and they're not entirely wrong. What it is, is in Greek, there's two words for patience. One has to deal with circumstances that you're under. Those circumstances will include a, a variety of things. Maybe financial, maybe health-related, right? It may actually be persecution, but it's a broad term that governs circumstances. And that's what James is talking about in James chapter 1. And that's why NASB, New American Standard, translated as endurance, Right? Because they know that the, the next word is coming up here in James chapter 5. And this word has to do with long-suffering. King James actually translates this, uses that old term, long-suffering. Long-tempered has to do with patience with people, right? which is often harder. There's that old joke about, the English always joke, well, I love France. It just has too many Frenchmen in it, Right? Well, when you think about patience with people, that's hard. What James is talking about when he's talking about patience, he's talking about an attitude of self-restraint. It's not that you're passively resigning yourself to suffering from somebody, but you're what? You have an attitude that's resisting a hasty reaction, right? You're waiting on the Lord. You're trusting the Lord. You're refusing to retaliate for a wrong committed. We see this in the picture James draws for in James chapter 5 verse 6. He says, the righteous man does not resist. It's an unwavering attitude trusting the Lord when people are terrible and harsh. That's not a natural response, right? You hit me, I hit you back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right? That's our response. That's what we want to do in our heart. Somebody cuts you off on the highway, what do you want to do? You want to go there and give them a piece of your mind, right? That's the natural response of, of us all, of all human beings, 
But you know what? This is a supernatural response. It comes through the strengthening and empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's where that humility comes in. The submission comes in. You're daily submitting to Christ. He's producing patience in your life. Do you think those martyrs had just, just were wonderful people, and they were, but do you think they just magically were able to endure suffering, that they were able to endure those things because they were filled with the Holy Spirit? God empowered them to, to resist, sorry, to, to be submissive and not resist imminent death. Galatians 5.22, many even know this passage, what, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in your life as you submit to Him. So it's patience with people, right? We can have hard circumstances, but one thing we remember as we're dealing with people, do you remember the man or the woman that was mistreated and robbed. Remember what James says, the Lord of Sabaoth hears their cries. When you're mistreated by others, God hears your cries. And you need to know that justice will be done. Trust in God. Wait for God. Don't take vengeance. Matthew 5, 38, Jesus' words, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Right? We have that, that expression that's in our lexicon in English, turn the other cheek. That's where it comes from. That's hard. That's not natural. Somebody slaps you. You're going to slap them back. That's, your, that's what you want to do. But Jesus says, look, it's not about retaliation. It's not about resistance. It's about submission, humility, trusting and waiting on God to take care of the situation. Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then later on in verse 19, Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's hard. Somebody's persecuting you, impugning you, slandering you, lying about you. To not resist is hard. Without the Holy Spirit empowering you, you will not be able to succeed in that. But you need to know that we wait on God because God Himself is patient. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Moses asked God, show me, show me your glory. And God said, well, if I did that, you'd die. So what did God do? God hit him behind the cleft of a rock. And then God's backside, a small aspect of God's revealed glory, passed by and the mountain shook and Moses was terrified. But while the glory of God was passing by, he heard the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Right? He heard the character of God or who God is. This is elaborated so much more throughout Scripture. 
We sing about God's compassion and His graciousness, His mercy, His loving kindness. Loving kindness in in the Hebrew is hesed. It's a a covenant-keeping love, a lasting love. So you think about God's character. God is patient. We, We often think about, well, why hasn't God acted? You know, why hasn't God taking care of the ungodly in this world. And we, we think about this and, and we look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we say, all right, well, if God hasn't taken care of these ungodly yet, He will at some time. But right now in, in this life, we follow the example of, of Jesus. Peter says, for you've been called for this purpose, and the purpose is suffering. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges what? Judges righteously. Right? We know that God's going to what? Bring justice in the future. We just talked about that a few weeks ago and, and the, the, the terrible nature of hell. We wait. We wait. And now James, just like any good preacher, he gives a great illustration. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. Right? He says, being patient about it till he gets the early and late rains. The, the farmer is waiting And you think about a farmer, and this is the picture James wants to draw out. A farmer is not just sitting on his hands and knees going, "Hmm, oh, waiting for the rain, waiting for the rain. The farmer is what? He's weeding, right? He's controlling the pest. Maybe he's fertilizing. Maybe he's repairing fences to protect his crops from, from animals. The farmer is working. He understands also that there are things outside of his control that he can do nothing about. He cannot bring the rains any sooner or make them last any longer. He has to trust and wait for God. And he says it again, he waits, he patiently waits. He has an attitude of dependence. It's the picture James is drawing for us. A farmer has an attitude of dependence upon God. He has no choice. There's no rain dance that he can do to make the rain come, right? James is saying, To you, brethren, wait on God when you're mistreated for Christ. Depend on God, trust in God, hope in God. Act like Christ. He's the example that we have to follow. And it's hard. And without your daily submission to Christ, without being filled with the Spirit in your own flesh and strength, you will fail. Because the reaction that we all want to do, the reaction that comes natural for, to us, is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? That's the, the natural human reaction. And when God saved you through Jesus Christ, the, the Holy Spirit has come in, He's indwelt you, and He's working in you, and He's going to see that work to completion. And He's making you more like Christ, and He's using these circumstances we know from James chapter 1, those those trials in your life, to produce endurance, the ability to what? To have patience over long term. Really to endure, to make it through those trials. 
And as you make it through those trials, James chapter 1, what you know those trials are producing Christ-likeness. They're, they're maturing you. Because James says, let those trials have their, their end, their completion, their goal. And their goal is you to look like Jesus Christ. As I was doing my pastor's comments, I, I had to, I had to have to, sorry, I got to, got to do Psalm 52. They're just a beautiful psalm. And one of the things about Psalm 52, at the end, he talks about, well, throughout the psalm, he talks about the wicked and the coming woe upon the wicked. But at the very end, verse 8, he says, but as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Green olive tree flourishes, right? Uh, producing much. But as for me, I'm like a green olive tree. I Listen to this. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Now, he's saying this after being oppressed, after being, after, excuse me, after suffering at the hands of the wicked. But he says, I trust in the loving kindness of God forever, and I will give thanks forever because you have done it. In other words, he's looking ahead to the justice that God's going to do. He, he, he can taste it. It's so near. And he says, I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. You see, he trusts and he waits. It's consistent in Scripture. When we face suffering in this life, hard people at work, trials from unbelievers, persecution, For these believers, poverty, even famine, even death, we wait on the Lord. We trust that He's going to look after us, that justice is going to be done. But not only should we have patience, look down in verse 8. He says, you too be patient, and He says, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. The idea for strengthen your heart, we, we have this expression, steal yourself, right? right? You want to have a, 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 like an iron heart. In other words, you want to have courage. You want to set yourself that you're going to be faithful no matter what comes. Steal yourself. Uh, be resolute. Use that old English term. Be resolute in your faith. So no matter what is shaking around you, you're not shaking on the inside. It's an assurance, a a confidence in God that no matter what happens, God has your best interest at heart. And that's hard. If you're in the midst of a situation where somebody's persecuting you and you're suffering and they're robbing your wages and 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 your family is starving and you have to wait on the Lord, it's hard. But you have to steal yourself for the fact that, look, God is still sovereign. And God is using this suffering in my life for a reason. And I'm saying that we pray for suffering, right? But we also don't always, we always always shouldn't pray to avoid suffering. You think about our natural response. If you look at our prayer lists, Our prayer list is, I'm going through a tough time. Lord, I want out. Help me to escape. What we should be praying is, Lord, I'd like to have out, but your will be done. Right? We want out of the suffering. Nobody wants to go through suffering. 
God's not capricious. He's not a, a Greek god or goddess who likes to see you, like to torment you. There's a purpose behind the trial. And when we go through hard times and we're suffering because people are, are hard and tough and, and oppress us and hate us because of Christ, we have to say, Lord, this is tough. Right? You read the Psalms. David is, is, is honest. Job is honest with the Lord. Lord, I don't want to have to go through this, but I pray that your will be done. Because I, what, I trust in you. I, I've got a, a, a strengthened heart. I'm resolute in my faith. Brethren, you have to resist your emotions and your feelings because our natural, our natural tendency is we, we allow our passions and our, and our emotions to dominate us, but we instead should be dominated by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians when he says, don't be, what, dominated, don't be drunk with alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. You know, fear, fear is a paralyzing factor. Fear paralyzes the mind. You're afraid of your situation. You're afraid for your family. You're afraid for the future. And what it does, it leads to excessive anxiety. It leads to what? Indecision. It leads to doubt. The Lord's goodness. We have have to overcome fear with faith. We have to trust the Lord that, yeah, I don't have, maybe I don't have as much money as I need or food or I need or I'm facing this, this trial and this persecution and this oppression from people, but God is not oblivious. He knows what's going on in your life. So, so what do you do? Well, how do, how do you have this courage in trials? Well, you think about Colossians Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and if you want to turn, you can. If not, you just listen. But Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, If you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So he's talking about seeking, that's your affections, that's what you love. You keep focusing in on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Not only do you set your your love for Him, right? But you also, verse 3, oh, sorry, verse 2, set your mind on the things above. Allow your thoughts to think about what is pure, what is holy, what is righteous, what is noble, what is good. God Himself, what He's done for you, what He's going to do for you. We get lazy with our thoughts. We're all guilty of it, right? Even in church. I can tell some of you just start wandering off. You're thinking about, this, what am I eat for lunch? What's the rain? Is it going to rain? Right? I, can't, I wonder if Josh would notice if I got out there and drove that tractor around a little bit. You know, we're all thinking about those. Right? We get distracted. We, we, we get lazy with our thoughts. Right? That happens in the midst of trials and suffering. We get lazy with our thoughts. We, thought, think, we start having a pity party for ourselves. Oh, woe is me. Nobody has ever been through a trial like this before. Like, not making light of trials. I'm just making light of our attitude sometimes. Right? We get lazy. Paul says, look, set your affections, what you love. If, if what you love is in heaven, is an inheritance that's reserved for heaven for you, protected by the power of God, and nobody can touch it, then if somebody comes along and, and takes away your car and your house, your possessions, eh, they're just things. They can be replaced. 
And if they're not replaced, what? They can't, they can't take away my heavenly home, my promised inheritance, right? When somebody comes along and, and is persecuting you for, for Christ, you can look at it and say, well, if they hated Jesus, I know they're going to hate me. What an honor that is that I'm, I'm facing persecution because of Christ. And by the way, if, if you don't ever face any opposition for Christ, does anybody around you really know you're a Christian? I'm not saying you go out and you look to fight, fight for fight's sake, right? And you, you get in people's face and you, you know, you're, you're being aggressive, right? Being sinful. But do your neighbors, do your friends outside of church, do, do your coworkers actually know you're a Christian? Right? There's no undercover Christians, right? right? There are only 12 spies in the land, right? They're not a spy. We're not spying out this world for an invasion. Right? We're to be likes in the world. So we fix our affections and our thoughts. We're, we're to be courageous. We're, we're to strengthen our hearts so that in the midst of those trials and tough times, we, we show faithfulness in spite of suffering. Because you will face people who dislike you, who despise you, and will, they will slander you and they will lie about you because you're a Christian. I've had it happen in my life. It's not a fun thing. But be resolute in your faith, knowing that He is working all things, right? And you could capitalize that in Romans 8, 28. He's working all things, right, to your good and His glory. And your ultimate good is not so that you can enjoy life, this life, more. This isn't your best life now, right? If this is the best life now, then pity on us. But he working, the work, He's working in your life to produce Christ's likeness, to prepare you for your eternal home. We have to think and be resolute and courageous and think about the goodness of God. The compassion. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. But James lays out a motivation. Just as if this wasn't instruction enough for us about being patient and waiting and knowing that we need to be courageous. James says, look, there's a motivation for that. He says, therefore, brethren, verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then look in verse 8, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So the motivation is the, is the parousia, the return of Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we should be patient, because Christ is coming back. He's promised that as He left, so He shall return. And He will come back for His bride, for us. He's going to prepare a place for us. It's a picture of a, a Jewish bridegroom who leaves after he gets in, engaged with his fiance. He goes to his father's house, and he goes and he prepares his father's house. He adds on rooms, preparing the house, getting it ready so that when the time is right, he leads the procession, all his groomsmen, with their torches, and they come, and they come all the way, and they come to the bride's home, and they get the bride, and they take the bride back, and it's a beautiful wedding and a huge party. It's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ will return for the church, His bride. So be courageous. That's our motivation. It's a living hope, Peter says. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is based on Christ's resurrection. We know that Christ is coming back. 
It's specific events. By the way, the, the, this term, the coming of the Lord, or the coming, the parousia, it was used by the ancient Greeks to describe a royal visit to a city. They would say, there's a parousia, the king is coming, the king is coming. And they would be honored by the presence of the, of the king or the official that was coming. Our hope is Christ's return. And that hope should have an impact on our lives. So when we go through suffering, we need to look ahead. And James says, look, just, just so you understand, he says not just the coming of the Lord, but he says the coming of the Lord is near. You see, right now we have Christ's presence mediated by the Holy Spirit, but when Christ returns, we'll have His literal bodily presence. You know, it's an attitude of expectancy. When you think about Jesus Christ's return is near, James could say that. He didn't know that it was going to be 2,000 years and Jesus didn't return. He didn't know that. Every generation of saints, we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us in 2 Peter that God is not slow to fulfill His promises, but what, he, what is it? What is He? Excuse me. He is patient. Same word. He is patient. I want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has not yet fulfilled all those He's called. He's not yet gathered His full church. There's still people that He is calling and saving. Praise the Lord, right? You and I wouldn't be saved. Wouldn't be church members. It's like a plane, if you think about it. My mom visited last year. Uh, well, it seems like last year. It was February. Wow, pre-COVID. <laughs> seems like so long ago. And uh, I have this plane tracker. And she you know, flew from the United States. She flew into Sydney and then uh, oh, no, Brisbane. She flew into Brisbane and then from Brisbane to, um, to Adelaide. And I have this plane tracker. So where I live over in Holden Hill, the planes, the direct pattern, they fly right over my house pretty much on the way to the airport. So I had the plane tracker. So, you know, the kids, I took the kids out and said, look, that's, that's grandma. That's grandma's plane right there, you know, as it's flying over. You know, I had a flight number and so we're waving, hey, hey. But when you think about my, my mom, she was near. But she, she wasn't yet here. She was near, but she wasn't here, Right? And if she got delayed and they had that plane circling, she would still be near, but she wouldn't be here yet, right? That's a great picture of Christ. Christ is near, right? But He's not here yet. So you think about the fact that Jesus is to return in the last days. When you hear the term the last days, the last days, and it's looking at it from a, a redemptive standpoint in Scripture, the last days started when Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. From that point on, Jesus Christ could return at any moment. And we look forward to that day. And we're to live in the expectancy of that moment, the joyous expectancy that Jesus Christ is going to return for His saints. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, look, be patient. Endure your sufferings with the idea that you can trust God to do what is right, you know there's going to be justice in the future. He's already talked about that earlier in John chapter, sorry, James chapter 5. You can trust God, wait on God, be patient with people in your suffering, knowing that Christ is going to come back. Right? You have that attitude, that affections for Christ, a mindset on the things of God, but a focus knowing that Christ could return at any moment. So what we believe should affect how we 
at. You see, James draws his point. But he also knows that he has to deal with human nature in trials. Right, look, look down in verse 9. This is the second point. Do Avoid strife. In, in verse 9, he says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. word there for complain is, is sigh. It's groaning. Oh, my circumstances, my trials, my suffering, it, it's so hard. You're groaning, complaining, and you're, you're taking your, your dissatisfaction, your frustrations over your circumstances, and you're taking them out on other people. How natural is that? You had a hard day at work. You come home, right? You didn't want to talk back to your boss. You come home, and what do you do? You, give your, you, get, you talk back to your wife, right? You give your wife lip. She gets all your frustrations, or your husband gets all your frustrations. Or your kids get all your frustrations. Right? Or maybe you, you haven't taken, maybe you've already taken it out on your family and it's still bothering you. And you come to church and you see some people and you, and you just start laying into them and you start looking at their lives and complaining. Oh, I wish so and so wouldn't act like that. And oh, I can't believe he's doing that. And she said this. And oh, and it goes on and on and on. James understands human nature. Right? We're under tough times. What do we do? We take it out on people that we love. We take it out on people around us that we know. That's, that's a human reaction. James describes this in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You, you don't get what you want or you think you deserve and, and you're, you're not happy. You're dissatisfied. And you lash out at those around you. You see that frustration, that anger, and let's be honest. When you talk about frustration, we like to we like to have code words. You know, we 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 say, "Oh, it's not anger; I'm irritated," or "I'm not angry; I'm frustrated." It's still anger, right? Now, it might not be a volcano-like anger where you're going to go strangle somebody, right? Hatred, but it's still anger, right? And that anger comes from dissatisfaction. And ultimately, if you're willing to be honest with yourself and you trace that back, I don't like the suffering that I'm going through. And I'm upset with this person. But what it really is, is you're dissatisfied and you're angry with the Lord. Because if you believe God's sovereign, and we talk about God's sovereignty, then who allowed you to go through that circumstance? Who allowed you to go through that suffering? Who allowed you to, to what? To suffer for the name of Christ? God did. Right? If you're angry and you're frustrated and you're upset, it's just if you trace it back and you're willing to be honest in your heart, you're really dissatisfied and you're really angry at God because He allowed that in your life. But James says, look, you, don't complain against one another. Right? Don't, don't take that frustration and anger, that dissatisfaction that you're, that you're feeling with your current situation and you're not dealing with properly and invent it out on other people. When I worked for a restaurant, we, we cooked chicken in henny pennies. And we used high heat and high pressure. Put the chicken in there and you, you like a submarine, you, you, you tighten the wheel up and it was huge amounts of pressure. Right? We had to have those things checked because you know, if you didn't have them checked and they weren't running properly, they could be in some ways dangerous. But you cook that chicken under high pressure and you could cook a huge amount of chicken in four minutes. It was very tasty. Right? 
But it was amazing, though. You, and the timer would go off, and it had an automatic valve that would vent that pressure, vent all that, that air. And you would hear it, and they would go, and the pressure would shoot up. And, you know, there's a vents above it to catch the excess moisture. And just you'd hear the pressure of those things. And you have five of them, they're all going, venting the pressure. It's just, just, just an amazing sight, hearing that, that venting. Well, brethren, that's, that's what it is. When, you, when you're undergoing that pressure from suffering, and that pressure from the outside world, you're, you're, you vent that pressure in the wrong way. Rather than, than go to God, and trust God, and wait for God, and, and have courage, you, you, you vent that pressure on those around you. And you're causing strife because guess what they're going to turn around and do, right? If they're, they're not walking with the Lord or, or they're in a bad day, having a bad day, and they're not, they might not respond properly, right? You see it in marriages. You know, I, I, I frustrated, I vent my, vent my frustrations to my wife and she turns around and vents her frustrations at me and soon enough we're, we're venting back, back and forth. And it's not a good thing. James says, look, I, I, know that, I know that things are stressful, brethren. And he uses that brethren again. Notice that. He, he's, he's trying to show them he cares and he understands their plight. He understands human nature. And he says, look, you, you, you're going through a, long, a hard time. You're suffering. People are, are coming after you. And he says, I know it's going to be stressful and I know it's going to be tough. But when you come to church, when you gather together, there needs not to be strife among you. You have to control yourself. You have to deal with your situation in a godly way. By the way, this is a command. It's not like, oh, don't complain. This is don't complain. Don't don't impugn each other and groan with each other. Call strife. You have to handle it in the right way. But notice also, there's accountability. In case, in case just the, the command, can, command itself excuse me, is not enough, James says, don't complain against one another so that you yourselves will not be what? Judged. And he says, the judge is standing at the door. So he makes this point. If there's going to be judgment, it's an undesirable action, right? The motivation is to remember that this is a sinful act. You know, one of the things about this, when, when you think about judging, what, what James is talking about here, he's talking about the Bema judgment seat, okay? And the one thing I have to clarify, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future, right? When we get to heaven, and you, if you're a believer, you will get to heaven, Right? You will be in His presence. If you confessed your sin, you repented of your sin, and believed in the name of Jesus Christ, if, if you have understood that you're a sinner and you need salvation and you can't earn that salvation, right? you submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When you get to heaven, that sin is paid for because Christ died on the cross for your sin. His blood, what? Cleanses us from unrighteousness. We've been wiped clean. We have an advocate before the Father. So when you get to heaven, there's no judgment. You get in. But what James is talking about was, is the doctrine of rewards, the doctrine of the Bema judgment seat. There is an aspect when we stand before Christ, we will have to hold, sorry, we will be held accountable for how we lived our lives as Christians. 
2 John 1.8, watch yourself so that you do not lose what we have worked for, so that you may be fully rewarded. Right? Romans, Romans chapter 14, there's a couple passages that specifically mention the beam of judgment seat. Sorry, I have a brand new Bible that I'm using for preaching, and the pages don't like to <laughs> come open. So Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Now, in Romans 14, Paul is addressing judgmentalism among the believers. And he says, But why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the bema, the judgment seat of God. And then in 2 Corinthians, this is the big one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Sorry. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the word, the bema seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So when you think about the bema seat, Paul uses this specifically, and James has this in mind. The bema seat was used for the Isthmian Games. It was an athletic contest. And what would happen is everyone who competes would be judged. And a judge would make sure that they're all following the rules and there was no cheating. And when you won a particular event, they would take you to the Bema seats. It was a platform where the judges sat. And when they, when they would look and they, and, and they would make sure, they said, all right, he competed according to the rules. He won the race and they would place on their head a wreath of victory. It was a reward for competing. Now, the, the, those who didn't win the race, they didn't get punished. There was no beatings or floggings because they lost. But the winners received the reward. And it's a picture. Paul uses this picture in Romans. And he uses it in 2 Corinthians. And James has the idea here that in the athletic contest of life, we are competing not against each other. We're running the race not competing against each other. We're running the race against the world, Satan, the flesh. And when we, we all will stand before Christ. Now, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he actually talks about the fact that the Corinthians, because the Corinthian church was in shambles, so he's rebuking the Corinthians all throughout Corinthians. When we think about 1 Corinthians and even 2 Corinthians, Paul's rebuking these believers. Everything's correctional. But he says this, and, and I think this is such a great passage. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race... All run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. In other words, he's saying we don't just exist as Christians. We want to run for the prize, the reward that God has for us. And it's a reward based off of your faithfulness. Based off of opportunities that He's giving you. John 5, 22 For the Father judges no one, but all judgment has been given to the Son. 
See, we're standing before Christ. Luke 12, 48, Everyone to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they would demand all the more. See, the key for us as believers is understanding that we are stewards. It's God's money. It's God's resources. It's God's children. Whatever we have is God's. And we are stewards. It's a picture. In those days, a wealthy landowner would own a huge property. And he couldn't be bothered to manage himself, so he would hire a steward, and he would entrust him with much responsibility, and he would, the steward would do things in the master's name, manage his finances, help his family, right? Hire tutors for his kids. You see, God is the master, and we are stewards of everything, and there will be an accountability. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Remember in elementary school, my teacher would go out of the room from time to time. They would, they would set us a test or a quiz, and, and they, would, you know, they would take this opportunity to go to the restroom or maybe go down to the lounge and get a coffee, and they'd come back, and you know, they found the, the, the class cutting up. We were told to be quiet and you know, do your work and, and, uh, or write your name on the board. We were all cutting up. So after a couple times, the teacher would leave, and you know I could I could see because I was in an angle. I could see there's a glass window. I could see the teacher at the door. Most people couldn't, because I was kind of on the back left. And she would stand at the door and she would listen. She would watch to see if we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. And that's the James picture here. He says the judge is standing at the door. Remember, we've already said that Jesus' return is near. He's in that holding pattern. He's at the door. He's ready to come in. He's ready to reward us for our faithfulness. Like I said, it doesn't mean we don't get to heaven. But there is an aspect of what you do in this life based on the knowledge you have of His Word, based off of the responsibilities He's giving you, based off the gifts He's giving you, that you're going to be held accountable as a steward. And there'll be a loss and there'll be a gain of rewards as your works are tested. Paul draws this picture out in 1 Corinthians. Flip over to 1 Corinthians for me. Chapter 3. I'll show you exactly what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now verse 11. Now Paul is talking about ministry work, but the principle applies to all of us. Verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, and he's talking about the day of judgment, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test what? The quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So the idea is that, is that we'll still be saved, but there's a, a testing of your work, of your motives, of your faithfulness. What a motivation for right behavior, because just tie it back into James. So James is saying... Wait for the Lord, show courage, don't cause strife. 
Don't respond poorly to your trials because you've got a reward for you already, already waiting. Don't lose your reward by your poor behavior. You're suffering this trial and you're enduring it for the name of Christ and you're, and you're waiting on the Lord and you're trusting on the Lord and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're causing strife and dissension and you're, you're disheartened. And, you're, and, and all of a sudden, you're, you're not trusting the Lord anymore. You say you're, you're losing your reward. You're going for this trial, and there won't be any reward for it. That should be a motivation to, to make us focus in, all right, well, as I'm going through this trial, am I, am I spending the time necessary with Christ? Am I keeping my affections and my mind focused on Christ? Am I not resisting? Am I treating others with love? That goes back to love. If you love somebody, are you going to purposely try to hurt them? Right? Are you going to grumble against them and complain against them? Are you going to take out and venture frustrations on that person? Brethren, don't, don't lose your reward. If you're enduring a trial and suffering, don't lose your reward because you're, you're not handling the right way towards others. Right? You might not be resisting the unbelievers. You might be maybe passively trusting or should be actively trusting God and handling that in the right way. But then in, on the flip side, you're, you're venting everything. You're venting your dissatisfaction and your anger of your situation on everybody else. That's, that's why James draws this. The, the motivation for our behavior should be Christ is coming back. But the motivation to keep us from, from sinning should be Christ is coming back. Brethren, your, your eternal home is secure. Run the race, not just as a participant, right? Run the race looking to win, looking to have victory over this world, victory over sin, the indwelling flesh, mortify that flesh. Look to have victory over Satan as he tempts you, as he oppresses you. As people hate you as a, for being a Christian, you want to run the race with the idea that there's going to be a reward, there's going to be a victor's crown for you. Paul even, sorry, James even mentions that crown in first, or James chapter 1, verse 12. Right? You see the, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. You run the race to win. You run the race to be an overcomer, to be a victor. The judge is at the door. Charles Spurgeon said, Scarcely a day rolls over my head in which the most villainous abuse, the most fearful slander is not uttered against me, both privately and in the public press. Every engine is employed to put down God's minister. Every lie that man can invent is hurled at me. When you take a stand for Christ and you decide that you're going to live faithfully according to His Word, you become a target. That's the last thing that Satan wants, is that people living their lives to glorify Him according to God's Word. Right? You want to make an impact in your family and your friends? Live faithfully. James wants to help you this morning. Right? James wants to help you endure suffering. We'll finish the next two principles next week, but he wants you to understand that you need to wait on the Lord patiently, trusting the Lord, trusting His character, His goodness, 
trusting that He's sovereign. He also doesn't want you to lose the reward. He wants you to treat others with love, to avoid strife, avoid taking out your frustrations and anger on each other. But no, brethren, you don't have to do it by yourself. You remember James chapter 4, verse 6? Right? God gives a greater grace. God gives you grace enough to do what He's called you to do. He's given you grace to endure suffering. He gives you grace to overcome persecution. He gives you grace to overcome sin and the temptations of Satan. God gives a greater grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, oh Lord, what a blessing it is to hear your instructions, to, to know that when we go through those trials of a, of a nature for the name of Christ, of a persecution of suffering for Jesus' name, no matter what that entails, Father, we know that you're with us. You've indwelled us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would submit, that we'd walk with you daily so that when we face those times of opposition, that we are ready with a, not a harsh word, but words of grace, words of gospel, salvation, of life in Christ. Help us to trust you, to wait patiently, knowing that in our flesh it's impossible. We want to retaliate. We want revenge. But Lord, help us to overcome the, the natural tendency of the flesh. Give us grace to respond with no resistance, to, to be like our Lord. We trust in you, Father. Father, help us to resist the temptation to, to grumble and complain against one another, to, to show our, our dissatisfaction in our hearts and our frustrations and, and lay those and vent those out on others. Lord, help us to be content in our hearts, trusting you, dealing with our situation before we ever have the opportunity to vent it on someone else. Lord, help us to not lose our reward. We look forward to the day and we pray for you to come back, our Jesus Christ, our Lord, Maranatha. The day is near and we long for that. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful. Help us to be good stewards, knowing that we're, you're going to evaluate our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.